Take your Bible, if you would, and turn to the ninth chapter of the Gospel of John. John chapter 9. There's a story that we will uh, begin but not finish today. Uh, It's a rather long story, and there's a point that I want to make uh, from it. In John chapter 9, and I'm simply going to read uh, a portion of this story beginning in verse 1. As Jesus was passing by, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus answered. This came about so that God's works might be displayed in him. We must do the works of him who sent me while it is still day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After he said these things, he spit on the ground, made some mud from the saliva, and spread the mud on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he left, washed, and came back seeing. Now, as I intimated, there is much more to this story in the rest of the ninth chapter of John, and I encourage you to explore that on your own. But today I want to focus on the reason that the man was born blind. This issue of why this man was born blind is the initial point of the disagreement between the disciples and Jesus. And you see, of course, as we read, the disciples believed the man was born blind because someone sinned. Either the man somehow sinned uh, before he was even born, or his parents must have sinned. But Jesus said, no, the man was born blind so that God could do a work in the man's life. And I want you to think about people that may be born into a disadvantageous situation born with a disease or whatever else. Uh, People are born into disadvantaged situations for no fault of their own. Uh, Someone might be born with a disability, might be born with a disease. We might think, well, that's not fair. Someone else might be born in a nation that is not as um, advanced as other nations. Some people may, may be born into a dysfunctional family. Or maybe a family that's very poor and not as wealthy as another family. Or someone might simply be born on the wrong side of the tracks, as they say. Or someone could be born with a color of skin that is unlike the skin color of those in power. And so they feel disadvantaged. Well, I believe that this brief interaction between the disciples and Jesus speaks volumes when we think that we are disadvantaged for one reason or another. And by the way, this is a very contemporary topic. In case you haven't noticed, there are some some movements afoot that take aim at addressing these disadvantages that people experience. For example, Black Lives Matter, the movement, not the slogan. um, Black Lives Matter seeks to address injustices and disadvantages in the black community through governmental adoption and implementation of Marxist practices. You have critical race theory, also very much in the news. 
That's designed to educate people to its central tenet that the reason for disparities among different ethnicities is because of injustices in the past. And the solution requires both governmental intervention as well as those who are born into privilege apologize and make amends for being born into privilege. You have a great movement of socialism today. Socialism is an economic system that seeks to use the power of government to provide what ends up being a never-ending number of goods and services to the disadvantaged by taxing those with wealth. And of course, as Margaret Thatcher quipped, the trouble with socialism is that eventually you run out of other people's money. Well, in fact, all of these so-called solutions are, are actually misguided. And they cause much more harm than good, even to the people that they intend to help. And some people might balk at me even talking about these things because they might think that unless you are disadvantaged in, in a way that the self-appointed gatekeepers of society recognize, then you are unqualified to understand or commiserate with or even participate in trying to solve the problems in society. And I disagree with that premise as strongly as I disagree with the so-called solutions that are steeped in Marxism. I believe that the Lord has provided us a way, provided society a way, in which all people may improve their lot in life and experience the blessings that God has intended for all. And the principles of such a strategy are, of course, found in God's Word, in the Bible. And we, all we have to do is read it and identify the principles and act accordingly. But before I show you these principles from God's Word, I first want to expose a, a fatal flaw in all of these so-called solutions that I've identified today. And there's others, by the way. You see, there's a common thread that runs through them all, and that thread is a call for equity. Now, the word that you usually hear is not equity, but equality. That's one of the big buzzwords these days, equality. And uh, equality and equity are related, but they are nevertheless distinct. A few years ago, um, a multi-ethnic pastors consortium was formed here in Lubbock, and its purpose was, to, was intended to discuss the issues of race and injustice. And since all of us should be uh, very concerned and have an interest in justice, and since I have a personal interest in ethnic studies, my doctoral work was focused on helping churches minister to multi-ethnic communities, I decided to join the consortium. And it didn't take long before these so-called solutions that I presented earlier in the sermon uh, that I've referenced today, were, they were presented as the Christian way to do things. Well, some pastors quickly dropped out of the consortium because they identified these solutions as Marxism clothed with Christian terminology. And I came to the same conclusion as those who dropped out, but I stayed in. I wanted to see if what I believed could stand up to the scrutiny of those with a different opinion. At one point in the meetings, we were shown this picture that illustrates the difference between equality and equity. 
You see it's the same picture essentially. Three kids are trying to watch a baseball game, but they have to see over the fence. And so in the first picture, um, equality means that each one of the kids gets to stand on the same size box. And you see the problem. Shorty cannot see the game. It doesn't help, does it? The next picture shows us equity. Equity means that each kid gets to stand on enough boxes to make the kids the same height. Voila, everyone gets to see the game. Well, when I saw this image at the pastor's consortium, I mean, it made a lot of sense. Equity is about outcomes. Okay, I get it. Lesson learned. And then the moderator of the consortium made a mistake. He showed me the third image. And in the third image, you notice something's missing. The fence. Here we have liberation. Liberation is the removal of the barrier or barriers that is causing the problem. Well, that makes perfect sense, too. And you might wonder, well, why was it a mistake to show me the third picture? Because when I saw the third picture, I realized that the entire discussion about modern-day equality and equity and liberation was missing the point. If we can identify what the fence is in society that is causing the problem, that is causing people pain, then all we need to do is remove the fence. The answer is not taking boxes from the tall, privileged kid and giving them to the short, unprivileged kid. The answer? Remove the fence. Well, when I proceeded to identify to the others what I precisely believed the fence was that needed to be removed, well, my idea was acknowledged as unique. However, the predetermined agenda needed to move on. Later, when I brought up historical and statistical evidence for my position, I was told that those things don't count for the personal emotional toll and the personal stories that people had. Okay? So at the next meeting, I shared personal stories that gave more evidence for my position and I was told that personal stories are anecdotal and lacked the gravitas of history and statistics. And I quickly realized that I was in a no-win situation and that my inconvenient truths were not going to get in the way of a predetermined agenda. Now, I know that I left you hanging so far and you might like to know what the fence is that needs to be removed. You see, in my opinion, the fence that is causing so many people pain, that disrupts so many people's lives, that is the cause of so many injustices in society, it is the government. You see, in our current repaganization of Western culture, it is the government that is the counterfeit that is replacing personal responsibility. I remade these three images, and it may be difficult to see, but I've identified government as the fence.
You see, one of the proper and good functions of the government is to correct injustices. Martin Luther King Jr. was right when he said, Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. For example, slavery in America was a terrible, unjust institution, and it was condoned and supported and protected by the government in the 1800s and before. When slavery was finally abolished, Jim Crow laws unjustly punished and pushed down people of color. Again, this was the government doing this, as is evidenced by Jim Crow laws being called laws. In the mid-1900s, there were federal, state, and local laws and regulations that disallowed people of color from being able to purchase property in certain areas or even qualify for loans to purchase property at all. And this was an injustice that continued until the 1960s. Time and time again, unjust people used the power of the government to erect an unnecessary fence to stop certain people from experiencing life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Government was the problem. Government was the fence. Today, we face an additional challenge. The problem we have today is, is this, that people think that government is the solution. For example, when the war on poverty began in the 1960s, sometimes called the welfare system, began with its various programs, it had at least two devastating effects. Number one, it actually slowed down the rate at which people escaped poverty. It slowed it down. Secondly, it increased the percentage of single moms in society. Today, the single mom rate among whites is around 33%. Among Hispanics is over 50%. And among African Americans is over 70%. The welfare system creates a process by which poverty-stricken moms don't need a husband. In fact, more financial benefits are received if one remains unmarried and has more kids. The welfare state rewards single-parent households and punishes marriage. Now, you might say, well, what's wrong with being a single mom? Listen to me very carefully. If you are a single mom, you have the hardest job in the world. You have all of my respect. All of my respect. You are choosing to raise and to love and to care for that child while facing the entire world, if need be, on your own. And I want you to know that we as a church will support you in that effort. We want you to know and experience the love of God, and we want the same for your child we do not in any way condemn you. 
God has given you a wonderful blessing called a child. And I would add this as well. If you happen to, in any way, receive government assistance, by all means, keep doing so. Okay? You do not need to take a principled stand that causes you starvation. That is ridiculous. Just because the system is disadvantageous, that does not mean that you should not avail yourself of the resources society has given you. And so please do take advantage of that system, but also know that the government will never, ever, by itself, enable you to lift yourself up out of your current situation. That is and always will be up to you. And so I want you to know just a little bit about the connection between being a single parent and poverty. The poverty rate among blacks as a group is 22% or thereabouts. The poverty rate among whites as a group is around 11%. But the poverty rate among black married people in their household is 7.5%. It's less than the poverty rate among whites as a group. The lesson is this. Marriage, not government, is the single biggest factor in raising a single parent household out of poverty. It is marriage. And it illustrates a very important point. When the government gets out of the way and people are free to make wise lifestyle choices, such as believing in the institution of marriage, such as relying on innovation and hard work to elevate oneself out of a disadvantageous situation, it is then that people can rise above poverty, rise out of social bondage, and rise into the blessings that God intends for all. The government erects itself as the fence, and then the government provides so-called solutions to see over the fence. Socialism is another government-focused cure that is worse than the disease. In the middle image of what you see on the screen, if it actually reflected reality, all three kids standing on the boxes of socialism would be sinking in quicksand at the same time. That's what socialism does. It creates a never-ending struggle for individuals to overcome, and it is, at its core, immoral and unjust. Now, let's get back to our blind friend in John chapter 9. I want to show you just a few things that I think we can learn from God's perspective. First, we need to accept the harsh reality that equality is a myth. It is a myth. There is no such thing, not in reality, as equality. There never has been, and there never will be. Now, when we say that all men are created equal, 
we mean that human, all human beings are given the same rights by God, rights which should not be infringed, and that is true. But it was George Orwell's Animal Farm that observed all animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others. You know, some people are, indeed, born blind, and that's not fair. Some people are born in places other than Texas, and that's not fair for them. Some people are born with genetics that give them a high metabolism, and I am here to tell you that is absolutely not fair. And some kids like my own have never experienced the Dallas Cowboys winning a Super Bowl. And my kids aren't kids anymore. They're in their 20s. And that's not fair. Things in life simply are not equal. And they never have been. Even before sin entered the world, Adam and Eve were not created at the same time. Adam came first. Crickets were not given dominion over creation. Man was. No two mountains are the same. Neither are any two flowers. Nature itself is filled with inequities, not equality. If a lion and a deer get into a fight, it will not be a fight of equals. Some inequities in life are tragic, especially those that are due, at least in part, to some past injustice. We should remember the words of Booker T. Washington, who said, success is to be measured not so much by the position one has reached in life as by the obstacles which he has overcome. Second, we need to remember that there is not an inequity in life that we experience that is beyond God's recognition or control. God said to Moses, Who placed a mouth on humans? Who makes a person mute or deaf, seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? You know, the quicker we are to accept the realities of our position in life, the more well-adjusted we will be to live in those realities and, if necessary, overcome them. You can complain all your life about not having what other people have, and some people do. But that's the quickest way to misery. Life's too short to be miserable all day long. It's true that some people think they hit a home run when they were born on third base. But don't let that stop you from swinging for the fences. Some people have a very easy time in school, for example. And for others, it's a struggle. But as my granddad told me a long time ago, sometimes a hard C is better than an easy A. And he's right. One of my favorite people to listen to and read is Thomas Sowell. He was born in 1930. His father died shortly before his birth. He never knew his father. His mother was a housemaid, making hardly anything, who already had four children 
before him. And so she gave him up and he was adopted by his great aunt and her daughters. His childhood encounters with white people were so limited that he did not know that blonde was a hair color. He literally did not know. He dropped out of high school because there were financial difficulties in the home and he needed to help out. He later joined the Marines and then later he went to college and eventually he received a PhD in economics in 1968. This man and so many others like him show us that you don't have to be born into a privileged position to live out your dream and to become an inspiration to others. You may not like those circumstances that have been thrust upon you. You may not like having to have lived through a pandemic or being born poor or being born disabled or being born whatever else. You may be like Frodo in Tolkien's The Fellowship of the Ring, who said about his own circumstances, I wish it need not have happened in my time. But consider the words of Gandalf, who replied, So do I, and so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. God knows about your difficulties. And he is here to help you through them. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus answered. This came about so that God's works might be displayed in him. We must do the works of him who sent me while it is day. You know... Sometimes we must face unjust challenges so that God receives glory. And I want to show you or say very briefly how exactly God is glorified when we face unjust challenges. It is this way, by working in us and helping us overcome our difficulties, whatever they may be. God is glorified in our weakness. And not only does God work in us like he did with this blind man, but he calls us as believers to join him in his work. We, Jesus said, must do the works of him. We must be about our Father's business. You see, when you and I see injustices, we must stand with those who have been unjustly harmed, just like the abolitionists, the Christian abolitionists, who did their work during the days of slavery. When we see people that are hurting, we must provide the salve for their wounds, be it physical, financial, or spiritual, just like the great missionary Lottie Moon did for the people in her care. We must remember that we are the body of Christ. We are his hands who lift up the downtrodden. We are his feet that run to the helpless and the distressed. The government is not the solution. More often than not, it is the problem. 
The government, excuse me, the solution is found within us. It is Christ working in us who changes hearts, who transforms minds, and who heals the brokenhearted. And when Christ truly moves in a person's life, the effects are so profound that generation after generation are blessed. The same Jesus that brought sight to the man born blind, he brings healing for all who would come to him. The Lord never promises anyone that they will be born into a perfectly just and fair situation. That's simply not the world we live in. The Lord never promises that our road in life will be easy. But what he does promise is that for everyone who seeks after him, he will be there. He will help you overcome. He will help you, in fact, be a blessing to others. This same Jesus who helped this blind man later, not too many days later, died on a cross. He died on a cross. We might look at that and say, that's the worst injustice of all. That this man, Jesus, who committed no sins, who did nothing wrong, would have to go through what he went through on the cross. But Jesus went there willingly, suffering the injustices that he suffered for my sake and for yours. He invites us, since he paid, for our, paid the penalty for our sins, to receive him to ourselves so that he is our Lord, he is our Savior. And if we trust in Jesus, the one who died on the cross and who was raised from the dead, the one who ascended to heaven as Lord over all and the one who's coming back as king, if we receive Jesus, then he will be with us in spirit all of our days.